Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Our topic for today's podcast is the power of cooperatives as a counter to political and corporate powers. It's clear that we are at a crossroads in the world, a make or break point for humanity. In a time when many people feel powerless, where do we have places to take back power that we may have overlooked, discounted, or not recognized? One of these is the power of cooperatives, which represent a substantial presence in world finance. If all the cooperatives were bundled together into a country, they'd be the world's seventh largest economy. Our guest today is very well known in her work with cooperatives, both locally and internationally. Please welcome Annie Hoy. Annie, it's good to have you here today. Thank you, Jane. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, Annie, could you share a little with us of your background and what you've done in the field of co-ops? So in the field of co-ops, I've worked 25 years as the marketing, outreach, and education director of a food co-op. Oh, so what are some of the benefits of a cooperative for its members and for for the whole (laughs) co-op? Well, there are many benefits. There is a financial benefit in that Uh, You buy a share, one share, in the co-op. You're only allowed one share. You know, in a corporation, you can buy as many shares as you like. But in a co-op, you get one share. Your neighbor gets one share. It's very equitable. Then, in return for your share, you get a return of what you spend at the co-op based on how much you spend. So it's called a patronage dividend or a patronage refund. The more you shop at the co-op, if the co-op makes a profit, the more you'll get back because you've used the co-op more than the ordinary bear. The other benefit is that you own it. You are a shareholder in the business. It's official in every way. And because of that, you get the benefit of being able to run for the board of directors, receive that patronage dividend at the end of the year, uh, take part in many of the events that a food co-op puts together or a co-op in general. So that's the benefit for food co-ops. If you're a credit union, you get a higher interest rate on your uh, CDs and investments. You'll get a lower interest rate on your loans. And you know that it's not a big corporation that's making money where their CEOs are making all the money. In a credit union, nobody's making any money because everyone's on the same playing field. You are a depositor. It's a bank that's owned by the depositors. And so your return, the benefit, is lower rates on your loans and just better better service all around because you can walk into that bank and say, I own this bank. You can walk into any co-op and say, I own this co-op. When I think of co-ops, I usually think of like banks or food co-ops, but 
are there more tell me about more types of cooperatives that exist there are co-ops in every economic sector so in the electric sector in the utility sector for example there are user-owned electric utilities how did that start so that started in the 30s when electricity was you know towns were getting electrified and the last group of people to get electrified looked like it was going to be rural america so if you were in a city you had a maybe a city owned or a private electric utility that gave you electricity but if you were on a farm or a ranch out in rural america that big company from the city was unwilling to bring the line out to you because it cost too much money. Mm. So people in rural America got together and they started electric co-ops. They joined together, pooled their resources, and they were able to bring the line out to each of their individual farms and ranches. And there's been a documentary movie about... uh, the formation of electric co-ops. And when you're in a group of cooperators, they always get a little misty-eyed talking about the electrics. Uh, and they do so much good in, in the world beyond what they do to deliver excellent service to their owners. They also travel all over the world, individual electric uh, co-ops. They send their staff to... Central America or Guatemala or Russia, and they do public service in those communities by helping people get electrified. So the one that I'm thinking of is in Iowa, uh, an electric co-op there sent 15 of their linemen to Central America to this distant village, and they, as their public service project, brought a line out to this very remote village. And for the first time, their kids could read at night. They could do, they could function at night because they had light. They could function early in the morning because they had light. They could plug in an electric heater if it snowed there. So it brought them so much joy and it also, it made their lives better. And really, the basis of doing that kind of work, of cooperating with each other, is to make everybody's life better, to give you access to something that you might not have access to. If you waited for a corporation to start one. Ah. Right. And so that's how food co-ops got started. In the 70s, people didn't have access to natural and organic food. They would go to Safeway, and it would be all of the conventional brands and uh, no brown rice, no whole food, more like packaged food. And so communities got together and decided, hey, you know, us in our neighborhood, we're going to buy in bulk things that we want from these companies. So we're going to buy a 50-pound bag of brown rice we're going to buy 200 pounds of potatoes. We're going to, you know, we're going to buy in bulk. And then when the truck comes and offloads it at Dana's garage, 
everyone's going to come and they're going to get their share. That became so popular in the 70s that it became too big for a neighborhood to do because more and more people wanted to join. And that's how the first food co-ops were organized. Well, okay, then let's rent a space. We'll open a store. And instead of having to offload it at your garage, the distributor will offload it at our loading dock and we'll put it on the shelves and you'll join just like you did the buying club and you'll have access to the food that you like. So natural food stores and co-ops went hand in hand. So I remember going to uh, someone's backyard and picking up my produce, (laughs) but it was local. I had local fresh food. Right. What a, do cooperative co-ops have any buying power like say Walmart or Safeway when they buy in bulk? Uh, how does that work? So co-ops, in order to get access to the lowest prices possible mm-hmm. by making the largest orders possible, have joined together uh, like Ace Hardware, for example. Ace Hardware stores are independently owned stores, but they're a member of the Ace Hardware Co-op, which is a purchasing co-op. And in that way, if you're a member of the Ace Hardware Co-op, then you and all the other Ace Hardware stores are able to buy the nuts, not the the nuts and bolts, well, the, you know, the screws and the bolts and the paint and all of the hardware items that they have, screen doors, whatever, they all come from Ace. So that individual store's benefit is that they get a lower price on what they're going to sell, and then they can pass that on to the consumer by not needing to charge as much in order to make a profit. That's how that works. What other benefits or, or advantages do co-ops have over commercial, commercially owned enterprises? Well, the most important benefit is that it's owned by the people who use its services. It's not owned by distant investors. There's not just one CEO that gets a huge bonus and you know, and then dividends of in the millions or the thousands sent off to investors who have used the company to make money. No one's making any money in the co-op world <laughs> because it's distributed equally among the members. Aha. Uh-huh. Or based on your use of the co-op in a food co-op, for example. If the food co-op makes a profit, then the owners can have a share of that profit based on their use of the co-op. So at the end of each year, when I get my uh, dividend back from REI, that's that's my member benefit. Exactly. If you've used REI a lot and everybody else has and they've made a nice profit, They're going to hold some back to continue the business and capitalize the business. And then they're going to give some back to you based on your purchases, the amount that you've purchased during the year. Aha. So is there an, what happens if a a co-op goes under or does that ever happen? Mm -hmm. Many co-ops have formed and gone under either after many, many years or just a few years out of opening. So anything that uh, your pay, your um, 
investment mm-hmm. into the co-op is 100% refundable. So while the co-op is demutualizing, then they have to pay all of the owners back their what their equity investment. Ah. So they pay back that equity. So if my the food co-op goes under, then everybody would get back their $100. Okay. Yeah. Is there an overarching organization for co-ops? And do they have a, a general uh, mission statement that they all agree on or guidelines and that they follow? Co-ops are international. So there's the International Co-op Alliance. And who belongs to that? All the co-ops in the world belong to that. Oh. So there's co-ops in every country. Uh-huh. Uh, there's areas of countries where co-op is the predominant form of business in Italy, oh. for example. Really? Um, yeah. And co-ops originated in Britain in well there it was in Rochdale, England, and it was at the height of the industrial revolution and 1844 workers as you know did not count for much in the industrial revolution (laughs) right there was child labor you got very poor wages and a group of textile workers Mm. decided that you know they just were tired of not being able to get food so they had heard in the social thought of those days about cooperation, this theory of cooperation and working together for the common good and being stronger together. And so they decided that they would open their own little grocery store, a little shop. Basically, they had candles, they had bulk oats, they had flour, they had all the staples and what they had found is that the the company stores, because there were a lot of company stores, mm. were cheating them in ways that you wouldn't imagine. They would put rocks in the coal. So mm. you would buy a pound of coal, but half of it might be rocks. You would buy flour, but they would put they they would uh, mess with the scales so there there were no standards for measurements. So you might be buying a pound of flour, but really all you were getting was 12 ounces because the scale was jiggered with. And they didn't like that. So one of the first things that was instituted in that very first co-op was honesty, honest weights and measures. And that co-op really started uh, with seven principles and 10 values. And those are still alive today. And every co-op, no matter what economic sector you're in, follows those seven principles and those 10 values. REI has to follow them. Medford Co-op has to follow them. Uh, CHS, a huge shipping co-op, has to follow them. Grange Co-op locally here has to follow them. Rogue Credit Union or any credit union has to follow them. Follow them. They are universal principles and values that all co-ops and cooperators live by. Who who polices that? Well, we police each other. 
So the members, yeah. the members of the co-op really do police. But then there's the International Cooperative Alliance, uh, and they are responsible for making sure that everybody is aware of those principles and values and how they play out on the local level. And then in America, there's the National Co-op Business Association. And so they do a lot of education and training and also keep the flame alive uh, for those principles and values. And then every, every co-op in every sector has a board of directors who are also uh, obliged and required to make sure that those seven principles and those 10 values are articulated. And so you have this global movement that is governed by common values and principles in every sector of the economy an economic engine that is owned by the people and are operated for the benefit of the people who own the co-op business. Wow. So did they get any, back in England, did they get any pushback from the corporations that didn't like them starting their own co-op? Yes. uh, They opened at midnight, if you can believe this, but this is the story. They opened at midnight on December 21st, 1844. And when they opened, there were hooligans in the story that couldn't believe that they were opening this store and what was wrong with them. And they threw rocks at the windows, they yelled at people going into the store, and it was it was a horror show. But the members they, what they had done is the, the workers, uh, in the textile workers, went to their bosses and asked if it was okay <laughs> if they could take a pence out of their salary to give to the co-op to make it start. In Rochdale, the industrialists agreed and let them take a pence from their paycheck and put it to the co-op. And that's how they capitalized the co-op. And it's the same way now with any co-op business. If a new food co-op starts, the first thing you do, one of the first things you do is get owners, even before the store exists, who will join the co-op and in enough numbers that that capitalizes the business in order to start. And once you have enough to get close to capitalizing, then you can show a lender that you're legit, and then you can borrow from the National Co-op Bank. There's a National Co-op Bank? Yes. Oh. Or you can borrow from your credit union, or you know, depending on whether they do that kind of business uh, lending. Or you can go to a, another bank that might be a state-chartered bank not a corporate bank. Uh, but there are so there's so many funds out there uh, that lend uh, just to co-ops in any sector. But the basis is that equity investment and maybe even an owner loan program that is conducted in order to capitalize a new co-op. Ugh. 
So if uh, if the food co-op that I worked for wanted and needed to do a big expansion, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to depend on loans from someplace else, from a big bank, they could go to their owners and run a, a capital campaign, and it would it would be registered on the uh, with the SEC. Owners would lend the co-op money on terms, and once the co-op was completed with the project, then the and the loans came due, then the co-op would pay back loans to the owners, and they would have a better store or a new location or whatever it was that they needed to uh, capitalize. Mm. So, it's a it's a nice circle, right? It's that's great. The people who need a service, start a co-op, the co-op serves them, they continue to support it, and it's it's part of the circular economy, not the linear economy. Oh, the vertical, yeah, that top-down. Yeah, right. Okay. Hmm. Well, do you have any more success stories that you can think of that you'd like to share about maybe small ventures that supported a community or a neighborhood or something? Well, I'll I'll talk about a Puget Consumers Co-op because they started out with one tiny little store in one tiny little neighborhood in the 70s in the Seattle area. They have grown, I think they might have over 15 stores now, and they have become a force of nature. Uh, because of that, they've given so much money back to their community. They have a farmland trust. So they oh. are preserving farmland that is providing local food to their co-op uh, instead of uh, planting houses on it. <laughs> so uh, they have given so much money to local nonprofits. That's one of the, the seventh co-op principle is concern for community. And so any co-op has some sort of a robust philanthropic venture that they do. And you might go into Rogue Credit Union and see that they want you to round up for schools. Ah, yes. So that, and you might come to um, a food co-op in Iowa City. They're doing a roundup for, uh, for a local uh, nonprofit. Uh, or Austin, Texas, where the owners vote every month on which, maybe out of three or four nonprofits, will get the roundup dollars that they're gathering that time. Oh. Or they may say, here's 20 local nonprofits and what they do, pick your top 12. And then they have them picked for the year. And each year, whatever organization is receiving the dollars that time is promoted in the store. This month, we're doing Roundup for the Battered Women's Shelter. And so if you want to round up meaning instead of getting your change, you round up to the nearest dollar and the change goes into the kitty. And so collectively, they give these grants every month to a revolving 
group of nonprofit organizations in their community. Wow. At Ashland Food Co-op, for example, we take 0.08 of any profit that we make and we put that into our community grant fund. And then at the end of the year, we know how much money we'll have to give away. And then we have a competitive process. I say we, I don't work there anymore. They have a competitive process where uh, you do a, a, a grant application and then owners sit on a committee that judge each application and choose who will get up to $2,000 in a grant, in a small grant. And that's been happening since the 80s. And that came from a co-op in Madison, Wisconsin, who started a community reinvestment fund, is what they called it. And after a few years, their board president probably told another board president, co-op board president about that at a conference. And they said, hey, that's a pretty cool idea. I'm going to take that back to my co-op. And they said, sure, because in the co-op world, we steal everybody's ideas. (laughs) And so they went back to their co-op and said, hey, board of directors, how about we do this? And then they, and so they just went like wildfire. And so every food co-op, at least in the country, has some form of a give back like that. Oh, that is great. And, you know, uh, the Grange Co-op, for example, they will give to FFA. And 4-H. And, yes. Yeah. Okay. So depending on your sector, right? I understand that you actually teach people to start their own co-ops. Can you talk about that or give some resources for that if people wanted to do it? Well, what we, what Ashland Food Co-op and uh, Rogue Credit Union, Medford Food Co-op, and Grange Co-op here in Southern Oregon, those four co-ops got together in 2012 when the United Nations designated that year as the year of cooperatives. The UN was encouraging cross-sector collaboration. So food co-ops working with electric co-ops, working with credit unions. That is a principle six co-ops helping co-ops kind of activity and also concern for community. In locally here, all the hospitals get together and have their linen done by in in a cooperative is that did that get started like that i don't know the origin story of that co-op but i do know that the need was access to affordable laundry services because we're in kind of a remote area down. Mm-hmm. This is not a metropolitan area right. in Southern Oregon. And Central Oregon is not a metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Hospitals and doctor's offices, clinics here got together with other hospitals in the region and formed a common laundry facility that can accommodate the linen needs of all of the hospitals and clinics, and formed a co-op. Each entity 
put in an equity investment, and they used that initial equity investment to capitalize the laundry facility. And now it's up and running, and a semi-truck does a 16-hour run every day to take clean laundry to all of the members, all the way over to Central Oregon, Bend Redmond area, and even a little bit north of that, and then take back all the dirty laundry. And the next day, the dirty laundry is getting cleaned, and the new laundry gets on the truck, and out they go delivering the clean laundry and picking up the dirty laundry. So it's and that be- economy of scale ah. is what they were after. Okay, and so, so it is cheaper. It is much cheaper because each of them doesn't have to hire people to run a laundry service or take the expense of building their own facility. And, and or, so it's probably more reliable? Yeah, because it's all owned by the hospitals. And, and, so, and it creates jobs. Really good paying jobs, too. <laughs> There's not that wow. much turnover in co-op jobs because they pay a living wage. They really value their employees because many of the employees in a consumer co-op are also members of the consumer co-op. They work there and they're also a member, mm. member owner. So um, if, if someone wanted to start a co-op, are there any resources that you can suggest? There are many resources. There's a whole, uh, across the country, there are government-funded co-op development centers. So closest one to us. How would you find it? What would you Google? You would just Google co-op development center. Ah. So there's a California co-op development center. There's the Northwest co-op development center. There's the Indiana co-op development center. They're all over the country or just a Google search of how to start a co-op. But didn't you start, didn't you um, have a contest to see for people vying to start co-ops and they all submitted their ideas and how did that work? The Ashland Food Co-op, along with fellow rogue co-ops, as uh, part of our collaboration that came out of that international year of collaboration, we've been collaborating ever since then. So this came out of, the Ashland Food Co-op's External Relations Committee as an idea to to spark new co-ops in our region. Because having just the ones that we have, it's great, but let's have more. <laughs> let's convert our local economy away from a corporate economy and convert it to a cooperative economy. How do we do that? Let's have more co-ops. So we decided to do it by running a contest a start a co-op contest. Honestly, this was kind of the brainchild of uh, Senator Jeff Golden, who was on our board of directors at that time and the chair of the External Relations Committee. So we started with giving five uh, lectures over time in various communities because we're kind of spread out in two counties, Jackson and Josephine County. Uh, So we did five building cooperative awareness classes using curriculum that uh, came from the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, which is very active in the upper Midwest, a curriculum that they give in schools 
And we modified that for our purposes, made it an hour-long presentation instead of a many days or two or three session. So we really stripped it down. And then we did five information sessions where we taught people about what a co-op was and invited them to think about starting their own co-op. So we have five finalists and their next class will be a class about really how to begin, how to start, and the business plans, uh, financials that you need to put together, your feasibility plan, and you have to turn in your business plan and your feasibility plan, and then there will be a panel of judges that will decide on who has the best, they'll do a, a a public presentation as well. So in front of this panel of judges, they will present their co-op plan and the judges will base on their presentation and their business plan and feasibility study, whether or not the likelihood is of this actually working. At the Small Business Development Center's business fair that they have every year, we're going to have a two-hour session where each of the finalists also give their public presentation on what their co-op idea is, and then we will announce the winner and have a reception for all of the co-ops that were finalists and to fet the winner. And so the winner gets... A $3,000 cash prize for technical assistance. Wow. And that is something that they can spend hiring a co-op developer uh, that will help them start their co-op. Before we end the show, because we're coming to a close, are there any last minute, last points that you would like to make? Just that the the most socially responsible business that there is is a co-op. Because... We're based on those seven principles, and I I would just like to tell you what those seven principles are and also the ten values because they're so important because they guide every single co-op on the Mm. planet. So the seven principles, and they date back to the 1844, voluntary and open membership. Nobody's going to force you to join the co-op, which means that anybody can join, and it's voluntary. The second co-op principle is democratic member control. Every owner of a co-op has a vote on any sort of a big thing or on who's going to be on their board of directors. So if you're a member of a credit union, you're probably going to get their annual report and then you're going to get a list of the candidates that are running for election for their board and then you can vote. But you don't get five votes. You get one vote. You get one vote. Okay. Your ability, your notification that you're going to vote on something for the corporation, your votes depend on how many shares you have. Uh, Also, there's member economic participation. That's your investment of buying one share in the co-op. And you are a full owner, just like all the other owners. Uh, Autonomy and independence. We are fiercely independent, even though we have overarching groups. Each co-op has its own autonomy and independence, and it's like herding cats sometimes when you're trying to work with a whole bunch of co-ops and get them together on the same page. Just the same way that it's hard to get 
your 10,000 owners all together on the same page. But that autonomy and independence means that we answer to each other, not to some distant corporation. Education, training, and information. You know, credit unions give you financial planning information. Food co-ops give you nutrition education. Ah, yes. Every co-op in every sector has some form of education, even if it's just a how to plant your flowers at the Ace Hardware store. So education is a big piece. And training for not only owners, but training for our employees is big. And then just information about our sector. So in a credit union, you're going to get financial information about what's going on in the greater world. At a food co-op, you're going to get information about what's going on with genetic modification and how do you tell the difference between organic and non-organic and what are the benefits of that. So there's a lot of it, or how to buy supplements properly, mm-hmm. why you need vitamin C. So that education, information, and training is a key piece. So then you're not trying to sell me something to, to push a product that you want me to buy. You're actually just giving information, which is really good. You make your own decision because you, like the co-op, are autonomous and independent. So you make your own decisions. Then cooperation among cooperatives. We talked about that earlier, about how the rogue co-ops is an example of that. Co-ops helping other co-ops, co-ops working together, co-ops going to Congress as a group and lobbying Congress, you know, it's, or it's our state legislature or our, uh, or our city council, co-ops helping each other because when we, we all rise together, right? When we work together, we all rise together and, and our voices are heard strongly. And then concern for community. If we don't have concern for our community, what good are we? We're not out to extract capital from our community. We're not out to extract resources from the planet. We are, have true concern for our community, whether it's our little town or our state or our country or the entire Earth, globe. Yeah. Every co-op has a concern for their local community and the global community. And we hold each other accountable for for that. And then we have this set of values that have things like honesty, self-responsibility, cooperators are responsible for themselves, equality, social responsibility, equity, Can we have a country that's a co-op? Equality. (laughs) Sustainability. Oh. So just following, just adopting the 10 co-op values, you're a better human. You're a better global citizen. Mm. And it's co-ops that are leading the way for that on a global basis. So you talked in your introduction about how we're at a critical time. It feels like everything is falling apart, that everything is going to corporations. Well, there's a very simple antidote to that. Form more (laughs) co-ops at 
every level, in your tiny town, in your big town, convert your business that you're getting ready to retire from and you don't know what to do, convert it to worker-owned, sell your business back to your workers. Mm. That is one of the key areas that is emerging for small business owners right now across the country. Or uh, start a co-work place where you all get together and you all share in the rent and you each have a desk in a space and you have a co-worker, co-working place that's owned by everyone who's working there. Or... Have a multi-stakeholder co-op. For example, Orcus Books in Olympia, Washington is now owned by its customers. It's owned by its vendors. It's owned by community members. Mm. Not one single owner. She sold it back to the community as a multi-stakeholder co-op. So now everybody has a stake in the business, the whole community. And there's a local bookstore here that is considering that. They're just at the very beginning. I can't tell you who it is. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So it's, it's our time. Our time is rising right now because we are the antidote to the corporate giants. And just think, I'm thinking about that linen service. In the hospitals they, in the road, in the in Oregon. They could have uh, contracted with a giant corporate linen service that doesn't uh, conserve water and they use very toxic chemicals to clean stuff and they're far away. But they didn't do that. And they didn't go to the expense of trying to uh, build their own facility because most hospitals are nonprofit. They don't have that kind of money. But instead, they pool their resources among other nonprofit hospitals. And together, they solved their problem. They needed clean laundry, and they needed dirty laundry taken away. <laughs> and together, at that scale, they were able to do that. And create jobs. And create jobs. Good jobs. Good paying jobs. (laughs) Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether it's a bookstore or a coffee shop or a grocery store or a hospital or a group of hospitals or housing. Housing co-ops are also uh, leading the way for affordable housing. Mm. Um, They've been in New York City and big other big cities for years and years. They're having a renaissance right now in order to address the need for affordable housing. Resident-owned communities, those are trailer parks, basically, that are being converted to being resident-owned communities. Then you don't have a landlord anymore. You own it together. There's no predatory rent or anything like that. At this time of transition, co-ops are poised and ready to take on the challenges of that whole system transition that's happening. Wow, that is inspiring. <laughs> it's, it's even bigger than I thought. <laughs> if people want to contact you, do you want to give any information about that? Or I think I would prefer that they 
contact you me on your okay. website? Would that be so, possible? Jane at changewithin.com. They can email me if you want to get a hold of Annie Hoy. So thank you, Annie, for a fascinating conversation today about cooperatives and their impact on the world. Well, that's it for today, and I'm so glad you could join us. So you don't miss any of our shows, make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.